came a long way. That's what the songs say. And I could do all things. I could do all things. Yeah, I could do all things. Yeah, yeah. We came a long way. That's what the songs say. And I could do all Hey, what's up? What's going on? And welcome to the Be Real Podcast, where we keep it real on social issues, history, news, faith, and everything in between. It's your one-stop podcast with thought-provoking talk and real content. Now, it's time to get real with your host, Brandon Mosley. You already know what I'm going to tell you. Slide out. Yeah, you can do all things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what the songs say. I can do all things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what the songs say. You could do all things. Yeah, yeah. That's what the song say. What's going on, you guys? This is your host, Brandon Mosley, the Be Real Podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in. Uh, first and foremost, I want to make sure you don't forget five star and also write a review. There's a lot of silent listeners, meaning people who haven't reviewed yet. So don't be shy. Let people know where you're getting your podcast fixed from. I really appreciate it. But also, we have a show um, store now, so you can get 90s kids t-shirts what i have on right now um you can have also find the be real podcast show art the no bad days remember there's no bad days only bad moments uh and there is the thought-provoking t-shirts and sweaters and uh coffee mugs and everything so make sure you visit the shop pick yourself something up and and represent right um let people know that you are uh, listening to some really thought-provoking things and you're enjoying the podcast. So definitely do that. With that being said, this episode is jam-packed. And it's a special episode. This episode is dealing with, well, you can say the election still. Because, I mean, let's let's just go ahead and um, say it's a celebration of sorts. And it's a celebration for African-American women. So let's go ahead and give them one of those. Yeah. Yeah. That's for you. And the reason why is when you... Take your time and actually look at the exit polls and you see what happened. And you also also have our Madam Vice President Harris, the first uh, woman and the first woman of color, which happens to be African or African-American and uh, Indian Southeast Asian. That's a humongous accomplishment, right? But how did we get here is the question. And really, when you look at the exit polls, you find out that Biden won. If you go all the way back to South Carolina, he won. We say yes because of African-American vote, but particularly African-American woman vote. Okay, so that's important for us to realize. Now, looking at it, the exit polls has it at 90 percent nationwide African-American women. The next group close to that would be African-American males at 79%, then uh, Latino women at 69%, okay? And we have white women at 44% voting for Biden. So overwhelmingly, African-American women went out there to to the ballot box, to the polls, and voted for Joe Biden. Safe to say, if African-American women didn't go out there and vote like that, he wouldn't 
even made it past the primary and definitely when it became president of the United States. And when we even look at Pennsylvania, right, or Georgia, black women are going out to vote 94, 96% of the time for for Joe Biden, where their white counterparts is at like 32, 35%, something like that in those states. So it lets you know the work they put in. But I think it's really important. This episode is going to deal with the work that African-American women put in uh, on the political side for the party um, in politics um, and voting rights act, all these things in the past that there's so many African-American women who their story hasn't been told. So this episode, I can't tell it all because it's too much to tell, but I'm going to do my best to tell some of the stories. And I think it's for, for us to realize that it's necessary to have these women in powerful positions, because when you look at who's in position right now, 69% of the of public offices, this is of 2019, are held uh, by white men and 88% by white Americans. It's safe to say that diversity and inclusion is necessary because that's where America is today. The browning of America, they say, right? This is where we are. So with that being said, I want you to sit back and enjoy this episode. Like I said, I can't tell it all, but I'm going to tell the best I can. Thank you. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how did we get to Madam Vice President Kamala Harris? How do we get there in terms of history? Who was the women that came before her who opened up the doors of opportunity? And there's so many women to talk about. But I narrowed it down to a few few important ones, I think, and, and they all are important, but I want to tell their, their story. And the first one that I, that I've had to tell is one going all the way back to the 1800s. So I want to tell a story about Marie Stewart. So Marie Stewart was actually born a free person in the 1800s, but by the age of five, both her parents died and she found herself being a servant to uh, clergyman, right? And she did that for years and years and she ended up getting married and, and actually marrying very well, an African-American male. Um, and they lived in a, a middle-class life until he passed away and she was defrauded from the executive of the estate or the will. Uh, this white guy stole the money from her and she ended up back where she was before serving people, working for people, then she just got a bright idea, you could say. Um, she completely converted over to, to Christ and she started to write and she became an author. And the first thing she wrote was a small pamphlet uh, entitled Religion and the Peer Principles of Morality. That's 1831. And what her main idea of change she felt change could only come in a few ways. 
of course, being anti-slavery, abolitionists, of course, you wanted to join that that group. Um, education was a key factor for economic progress and women's rights. So that was the themes. Those are the themes that were recurring in everything she did. And she actually started to speak and it was actually legal and against social norms for a woman to speak in public. And what she started to do is go out there and put herself out there and speak up for uh, women and speak up against slavery and speak up for education and speak up for the idea of economic growth. And she actually was the first African-American woman to lecture about women's rights and black women's rights. She's the first African-American woman and the first woman to speak to a mixed crowd, a mixed audience of men and women and black and white, because that didn't happen at all. You didn't speak politics. You didn't do any of those things. If you're a woman, especially a black woman, she's also the first known American woman to lecture about those political issues. Never happened before her, right? First African-American woman to make a public anti-slavery speech. So she is what many would call the forerunner for Frederick Douglass and Sojourner, Sojourner Truth, right? And with her essays and speeches, she presented the idea of if righteousness is right, freedom should be as well. Um, being a Christian lady, that, that's, that's the way she went about it. Um, and also that there's a struggle um, for women and especially women of color and African-American women. And she, she even said in many of her speeches that I'm, although I'm free, I'm no better than the slave woman. Right. Because my life has limitations because I'm a woman and I'm a black woman. Right. And that's that metrics of oppression that you have oppression because you're black and you have oppression because you're a woman. So what happens in is many of her ideas are so far ahead of her time. The, the idea of, of equality for women and women in the workplace she was hundreds of years ahead of her time that she wasn't accepted, that even her friends or her associates um, turned their back on her because her being a woman, that she was pushed out of the um, the way she was pushed out of the 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 abolitionist cause. She was pushed out of speaking engagements because she was a woman and because she was black. Um, and what she ended up doing was. She went into education. She became a teacher. She opened up schools, right? Because she truly felt that education was going to open up more doors for African-Americans and for women. So that's her, right? And she's lost in the history books, but please make sure you look up Maria Stewart. Amazing woman. And the second person I want to talk about is Charlotta Bass and take a listen to this. Charlotta Bass took a lot of risks in the work that she did. Southern California was one of the main fields where the Klan was recruiting 
And she called them out on a regular basis in the pages of the newspaper. And she suffered a campaign of harassment and threats. One night in 1925, Bass was working alone when eight hooded members of the Ku Klux Klan showed up at the paper's offices. She pulled a pistol out of the drawer of her desk and pointed at them. I had never handled a gun before and wasn't quite sure which end to point at the intruders, but they evidently thought I might know how to shoot, and all eight beat a hasty retreat. Charlotte was so tr- real, she had clan members running from her. Come on, y'all. Come on. Come on. Give her that one time. That's real. That's real. So listen, you may be asking yourself, who was Miss Bass? And first and foremost, she's actually the first African-American woman and first woman to run for vice president. Yeah, I said it. Vice president. She ran for it on the progressive party ticket in 1952. All right. And what makes her so interesting is that she ended up owning a black newspaper that she started off selling subscriptions um, and ended up owning the, the actual newspaper. Um, investigating all sorts of stories for African-Americans. Okay. The California Eagle. Um, She was a supreme advocate for civil liberties, women's rights, immigration. It went so far that we saw those as what you guys heard prior, those death threats was real. Not only that, the FBI placed her under surveillance. Okay. She was labeled a communist because she had ideas of equality, right? Um, and the the craziest thing is this only occurred because she was so willing to speak her mind that when these things happen for women, when women decide to speak their mind, there's normally an issue, especially African-American women, they, they're labeled. And in her case, she was labeled dangerous and that she was so dangerous that the FBI had to get involved. Right. And she spent her whole life literally fighting for other people. Husband would joke and say that you're going to get me killed one day. And her reply was, well, before good reason. And what makes her so interesting is that she actually was the co-president of UNIA universal Negro Improvement Association that was founded um, with Marcus Garvey. So she, she has always been um, her whole life. Someone who were in the, was in the forefront of change. Someone else who was lost in the history books. And when she decided to run um, on the ticket for the progressive party ticket, her, slogan and what she continued to say was win or lose we win by raising the issues and she understood she was so so much ahead of her time she understood the importance of voting she understood the importance of civil liberty she understand them understood the importance of immigration right and that she truly believed and she said this no, numerous times that in her lifetime that she was going to see the freedom of for African-Americans and she ended up passing a little bit after the civil rights act and the voting rights act. 
It's just insane to think that she went from selling subscriptions to a black newspaper to not only owning it, but running for vice president of the United States and ended up with 158 delegates. That is insane. And to think that nothing seems doable or possible until someone does it. And no one could even fathom a woman, an African-American woman running for vice president of the United States. And she did it. She did it. In 1952. (sighs) Insane. For the next woman that I want to talk about, I'm going to let her introduce herself. But she was so powerful in this speech that she gave, the testimony that she gave, that the President of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson, did an impromptu press conference just to get the news off of the coverage because he was so afraid of what she had to say. Dr. King was there speaking. Other civil rights leaders were there speaking. He wasn't afraid of them. She was more, he was more afraid of what she had to say. So take a listen. Mr. Chairman and to the credentials committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. And I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Roosevelt, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we was held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Roosevelt and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles in the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children that told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know, did Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, said, if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. Said, then if you go down and withdraw, said, you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him, said, I didn't try to register for you, I tried to register for myself. 
I had to leave that same night. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? Thank you. Wow. Wow. And the reason why I played that all the way through, because I didn't want to interrupt her like Lyndon Banks Johnson LBJ did. And it backfired on him because everyone was like, why, why did he even call it? He called it. He called the press conference just to say it's been nine months since the shooting of governor. I forget his name, right? Nine months since then. So the news played it over and over again. And he was so afraid of what she had to say over Dr. King is because what she was saying was the authentic truth that what was happening, a firsthand account, what was happening to people who were trying to register to vote in the South, in Mississippi, right? And she found herself there because the Democratic Party in, the, in Mississippi wouldn't allow black delegates segregated. They wouldn't allow it. They banned all black delegates and they came down with their own party, right? The Mississippi freedom democratic party. And they wanted to be seated. They wanted to be. So that was actually the committee hearing. So the decision was they were going to give the Mississippi freedom democratic party two at large seats. So meaning they couldn't seat couldn't sit actually with their state, right? This is the, the actual um, convention, right? Democratic convention we're talking about. It was in Atlanta. So they were thinking it over, trying to figure out this is the uh, black delegates. And what else they said, when I say they, the committee, after hearing decided for now on, and this pushed the democratic party for change for now on, that if you banned or or for some reason oppress any group, you would therefore be banned from the convention. And also on top of that, you had to, they had to, the Mississippi delegate pledge 100% behind the Democratic ticket, no matter what. Okay. With that being said, all of the white Mississippi delegates, but four walked and left and didn't even go back to the convention. And when it was time for that night, the convention, um, Fannie Lou and, and the rest of those of that group decided against those two at large seats. She said, we came too far and we're too tired to just have two seats. And they tried to make their way to the Mississippi delegate um, section because no one was sitting there because they all left. They couldn't get there. They wouldn't, they weren't allowed there. But that's who she was. That's how powerful she was. And to think about it, this is the same woman that I spoke about in my medical racism episode about having a hysterectomy um, without her prior knowledge, without being without any consent. She's she's also the same woman in 63 
in South Carolina was arrested and beaten severely, dealing with blood clots and kidney damage and leg damage for the rest of her life. She's the same woman who didn't leave a plantation field until her 40s, right? She's the same person that she was a timekeeper on the plant on the plantation for the sharecropper because she was the only ones that only one of the only person that could read and write. That that's that's amazing to think about how powerful and how strong she was, right? And a lot of times we overlook her in history. But she's so important to getting the Voting Rights Act done for pushing the Democratic Party towards democracy, towards uh, diversity, towards inclusion. Because as you know, prior, the South was all Democratic and the senators and congressmen were segregationists coming from the South in the Democratic Party. So she helped push and change the whole party. And after that, the South was no longer a Democratic stronghold because of that push, because of what she was trying to do. And it could have could have possibly stayed a Democratic stronghold if voting was much more accessible, as we saw what happens when it is in Georgia. So another person that uh, I, I had to have to talk about around the same time um, coming around the same time as Fannie Lou Hamer is Ella Baker. Ella Baker was, was pretty much officially known as the, the mother of civil rights. She's one of those people who really worked with everyone. We're talking about Dr. King. We're talking about SNCC. We're talking about NAACP. We're talking about Rosa Parks. All these people spoke to her, looked up to her, asked for her advice and asked for her to work with them. Okay. She joined in 1930, the young Negro cooperative league. And the main purpose was to develop black economic power uh, through collective planning. And a quote from her concerning about economics is this people cannot be free until there is enough work in the land to give everybody a job. So that was her focus starting off. And she ended up in the fifties going to Atlanta and Dr. King requests her to work with SCLC Southern Christian leadership conference. Um, And she ran the registration campaign um, called the crusade for citizens. And that was her job. Then when the 1960s hit, she started to realize and see a lot of young African-American students fighting for desegregation, right? Sitting at lunch counters. And she decided to work with them. So she decided to work with SNCC students, uh, student nonviolence coordinating committee. So we're talking about John Lewis at this point, right? And she taught them nonviolence. She taught them how to, 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 to work against violence collectively. Right. And she was so powerful with that, that they all looked at her as their mother. Right. John Lewis, 
And so she's credited as being the person who helped birth SNCC. That's Stokely Carmichael. That's John Lewis. That's the Black Power Movement. That's desegregation, Voting Rights Act. She's connected with all of that. And she said what was most powerful to her, that the next generation, that's that John Lewis generation, was going to be the one ones that carried it over the finish line. That's what she truly believed. And now that you see John Lewis, that his pastor and his intern are both now in the Senate. How powerful is that? That those two men that are in the Senate today, their mentor or the person that they worked with and looked up to was birthed from Ella Baker. There's no way I can do this episode without talking about the unbought and unbossed Shirley Chisholm. The first African-American woman to be in Congress. Okay. She's also the first African-American woman and first woman to run for a major ticket, major party presidency. So before I get too into her story, take a listen to when she actually announced that she was running. Americans all over are demanding a new sensibility, a new philosophy of government from Washington. Instead of sending spies to snoop on participants at Earth Day, I would welcome the efforts of concerned citizens of all ages to stop the abuse of our environment. Instead of watching a football game on television while young people beg for the attention of their president concerning our actions abroad, I would encourage them to speak out, organize for peaceful change, and vote in November. Instead of blocking efforts to control the huge amounts of money given political candidates by the rich and the powerful, I would provide certain limits on such amounts and encourage all the people of this nation to contribute small sums to the candidates of their choice. Instead of calculating the political costs of this or that policy and of weighing favors of this or that group, depending on whether that group voted for me in 1968, I would remind all Americans at this hour of the words of Abraham Lincoln, a house divided cannot stand. And that portion didn't have when she talks about that. I am black and I'm proud of it, but I'm not running for just black America. I'm a woman and I'm proud of it, but I'm not just running for women. I'm running for all Americans. So important, right? And 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 the crazy thing, her story is 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 similar to Kamala Harris. She's also a daughter of immigrants, right? Her she has parent or parent came also just like uh, Madam Vice President. Father came from Jamaica, came from the West Indies. Her mother came from Barbados. Her father from Guyana. So coming from New York and 
at first being a preschool preschool teacher, then going to Columbia and getting her master's in education, um, early education, I believe, and end up working in administration, working in in um, education further in more than just being a teacher, um, a consultant, running schools. I mean, she 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 started in education and she decided and got a, a notion in her mind that she was going to run for the state legislator legislative office in New York. And she won. Right. One, the first African-American woman to do that. Then she got in her head after the Voting Rights Act and after redistricting and after all these things occurred to kind of put um, in her favor opportunity to run for Congress. She ended up running for Congress and she ran against a person that should have won, that no one thought that she had a, a chance to win. And listening to that speech there, it seems like a speech that could have been given right now. Small donation, right? Saying, let's get big business out of politics. Let's make it fair, even, right? And let's be more concerned about the citizens, about people. And it's it's insane to think about that what she did was unthinkable. And once again, goes back to Everything's unthinkable until it's done, that it's difficult to understand or see it happen. And people will doubt it. And most people won't even come around and and work with you because they, they just think it's a waste of time. But she showed all of us that anything was possible. Right. And the, the crazy thing is when she decided to run for um president of the United States, the Congressional Black Caucus, CBC, and many of her friends didn't didn't um, back her because they thought it was a waste of time. So much so that they originally, when I say they, the committee that did all the, the debates tried to bar her from participating in any television primary debates and she had to take legal action just to be permitted uh, to make just one speech. They, they, they wouldn't give her coverage. Even today, if you look at most of the books about her, most of them are children books. There's not much real, like real literature about her enough coverage historically about her. Um, But she kept on, she pushed on and she, she entered 12 different primaries and gained about 10% of the total delegates. It's not bad. 152 without any true backing, without any media coverage, being underfinanced, um, and being pretty much pushed to the side. And this is the early 70s. That's what she was able to accomplish. So when people ask, you know, when or think about what, why would it be Kamala turn? Why, why, why now? Think about the women I've already mentioned and yet to mention. I, I still have uh, two more to mention that out of the hundreds that I could have. That's why. That's why. Right. And and Kamala said something that was really important. Madam Vice President, excuse me, said something that was very important. She said that these women, African-American women, 
has been the backbone to the Democratic Party and has helped democracy grow and keep and save democracy. And it's the reality. It's a reality, right? And Shirley Chisholm was one of those people, even with the death threats that came, even with the doubters that came, she was consistent. And she reminded people that she was pure hearted in terms of what she was seeking, that she didn't look for power. She didn't look for money. That's why she said, I'm unbought and unbossed, that no one paid for me and no one's bossing me around, that I'm doing this because this is the Chisholm trail, right? This is what I've, I know it's best. This is what I believe is best, right? And it's just amazing what she was able to accomplish. And I want to move on to someone who was pretty much a contemporary, you could say, came around a little bit after her, Barbara Jordan. And, and one woman you guys really know is Stacey Abrams. And Stacey Abrams, someone who she looked up to was Barbara Jordan, who happened to be her professor at University of Texas in, in at Austin when she was re- going to receive or going for her master's in, in public administration. And Barbara Jordan was an amazing woman and was a type of woman and a type of leader who's going to tell you like it is, right? And she was so impressive and so many people were so impressed by her that she ended up becoming very close with LBJ and was someone who Joe Biden admired. Joe Biden admired her so much. He suggests Jim to Jimmy Carter that her, his running mate should be Barbara Jordan. So to, to repeat that Joe Biden, who now has the first African-American Southeast Asian woman, right. As his vice president. Suggest to Jimmy Carter to select Barbara Jordan as his running mate, an African-American woman. Way back in 1975, he suggests that. So there's something to think about, right? And the reason why um, she splashed on the, the scene was because of the Nixon impeachment that was happening. The committees that was speaking about and hearing speeches about if they should impeach Nixon or not. And she gave an amazing speech on the floor. And I want you guys to hear it. Mr. Chairman, I join my colleague, Mr. Rangel, in thanking you for giving the junior members of this committee the glorious opportunity of sharing the pain of this inquiry. Mr. Chairman, you are a strong man and it has not been easy, but we have tried as best we can to give you uh, as much assistance as possible. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. 
But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Today, I am an inquisitor, and hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Wow, right? Wow. And because of that, she happened to become the first African-American woman to headline the Democratic convention okay and she ended up becoming literally a a star overnight because that 15 minute speech and and it's on youtube I'll, i'll definitely have it in our show notes that she literally goes in on nixon completely and many accredited him stepping down it was after that speech a little bit after that speech, because of that speech, that after hearing that the Republicans in the committee knew it was over. Not saying she was the only one, just saying that that speech she gave was the tipping point. Okay. And in a, such a historic moment that's completely lost on most of us that the first president to resign his tipping point was African-American woman pushing for it, speaking on the floor, very similar to some of the things we saw our madam vice president do during many of the committee hearings during the impeachment trials of our former president, President Donald J. Trump, that she was pushing the witnesses and trying to get the truth out of them, right? And this is what, you know, the, what many people would say, someone like Stacey Abrams and like our Madam Vice President, they're molded from a Barbara Jordan, you can say. And that is extremely powerful to think about and understand this black woman was so powerful that they, that people who would people who noticed it was people like LBJ who called her to, to the white house when she was still a legislator in Texas, because he was dealing with, you know, women rights, African-American rights and things of that nature and wanted to hear her voice. It's powerful, powerful. And I want to end last person I want to talk about. I want to talk about this person for a couple of reasons. Okay. One, her name is Carol Mosley Braun. I really like the last name Mosley. I really like it. I wonder why. And secondly, I want to talk about it because she was the first African-American woman to become a senator. She was the first. She blazed the trail for Kamala Harris. 
And she came out of Chicago, came out of Illinois. And when being the first black senator since the Reconstruction, by the way, and being in there in the chambers as the only black person when she served from, I believe, 93 to 99, she understood how historic it was. And, and, and she said this, I cannot escape the fact that I come to the Senate as a symbol of hope and change. Who used those same words when they ran for president? None other than President Barack Obama, who also was a senator from Illinois. Okay. Um, she was one of those people who watched Anita Hill and watched what happened to her in the committee and notice Clarence Thomas being re replacing Thurgood Marshall. And the only thing they had in common was their skin color. And knowing that Clarence Thomas was extremely conservative and watching what happened to Anita Hill, it made her want to run for Senate and go against the incumbent Democrat. And she won. She won. And she truly felt, and she said this, that the Senate absolutely needed a healthy dose of democracy. She said it wasn't enough to have millionaire white males over the age of 50 representing all the people in the country. And the crazy thing is the person that came to her first and put her and allowed her to work with him and, and, and took her underneath his wings was Joe Biden. Um, she credited Joe Biden for helping her so much and pursuing and pushing her to be a part of the judiciary committee and becoming her mentor. She even ran for president in 2004. So once again, it's crazy to think that Joe Biden, I know so many people have so much to say about Joe Biden, but think about this, that if you really understand, you know, look at the full history, he was normally on the right side of history in terms of, of uh, what was right and what was wrong. And of course, he made some mistakes. Of course, he done some things. But it, it's amazing to think that his span and his connection with African American women and African Americans in general that he pursued for Barbara Jordan to be a vice president. He was the vice president for Barack Obama. He helped and supported and pushed and and, and what Carol Mosley. Braun said, protected her many times on the Senate floor. Right? The first African-American woman to be senator. And now his vice president is the first African-American woman. Southeast descent as well. Amazing to think about. So with that being said, I want you to understand that Kamala Harrison didn't come out of nowhere. That. African-American women running and for office and supporting Democrats isn't a new thing. It's not. 
This is a part of history. And there was dozens of dozens of women I could talk about. I just happened to pick these women. Welcome to another Be Inspired moment. I want to use for a thought that everything's impossible until it's actually done. And just like so many of these women or all these women, they were told that they could not do it and it was impossible. They didn't let the impossible stop them. They didn't let the idea that no one before them has done it. They didn't let what people said or did stop them from doing it. They hadn't made up in their mind that they were going to try it no matter what. Win or lose, they were going to raise the issue. And I will implore you to do the same. That you may have a dream, you may have a goal that seemingly no one has done before. And you don't think you're up to the task because it just seems impossible. I want you to think about these women that I mentioned and realize that if they can go against the grain and if they can go against what seemingly would be the doom of their lives or their career, and they got the job done. So I suggest to you to understand that impossible is actually something that's waiting for you to do. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget five star and write a review and check out the web store. And also, if you have Instagram or Facebook, feel free to add those pages. But before you leave, I just want to say this, that we live in uncharted times that we are living in extraordinary times that anything is literally possible. And we saw that. We saw it on January 5th. We saw it in November. And we saw it January 20th. When we saw the oldest person sworn in to be president, the first woman to be sworn in as vice president, first person of color to be sworn in as, as vice president, as a millennial, a Jewish millennial, be sworn into the Senate. The first Latino, Latinx from California, to be sworn in to Senate. And the first African-American from the great state of Georgia to be sworn in as senator. So just like I said in the Be Inspired moment, anything is possible. And with that being said, there's no bad days, only bad moments. You decide. So decide to have a good day. God bless. Yeah, we came a long way. That's what the song said. And I could do all things. I could do all things. Yeah, I could do all things. Yeah, yeah, we came a long way. That's what the song said.